chapter 9. Uh, we're really going to look at the middle third or so today of Acts 9, uh, where we're going to find Saul, who, if you didn't know, later becomes Paul, the apostle. And, and if I accidentally slip into calling him Paul, just hear me say Saul for today, because it didn't happen yet. Uh, but we're really going to see him begin a period of preparation for the ministry, the calling that God had on his life. And so just as a refresher, I know it's been a couple of weeks now, Saul has just recently been converted by Jesus, showing up to him on the road to Damascus and basically knocking him off his horse, confronting him about the fact that Saul is persecuting Christians, and therefore Jesus says to Saul that Saul is persecuting him. And so you, uh, you see that Saul oversees the execution of, of Stephen in Acts 7 and 8, and then at the beginning of our chapter, chapter 9, Saul is on the way with legal papers to bring Christians who fled him, who fled the persecution that's broken out. Uh, they fled Jerusalem, and he's going to bring them back bound and headed for prison because they followed Jesus now. So that, that's who Saul is, right? And so Saul's on his way to Damascus. Jesus shows up, knocks him off his horse. Saul is converted. Uh, there's a lot more to say about that, but that's not for today. Saul is then visited by another Christian who God shows up and says, hey, I want you to go visit Saul, uh, and this guy is like, really though? Do you know who Saul is? And God says, yeah, I know who he is. Go visit him. Right? He prays for him. He lays hands on Saul, tells Saul that he now has the Holy Spirit. So we see this moment of hands being laid and the Spirit being passed, and from there Saul regains his strength, and that's where we pick it up. That was a very cursory uh, overview of what's happened to this point, but if you have uh, time, you can go back and read that. So Acts chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 19b. So the second half of verse 19 uh, is, there's probably a heading in your Bible. There is one in my Bible, depending on your translation, but uh, I use ESV, and in that version, there is a heading right in the middle of verse 19. And so this is just a side note, it's not really part of the sermon today, but this is a good spot. Uh, just to let you know, if you didn't know, the verses and the chapter numbers in your Bible... Uh, the reason they sometimes break in a weird spot is because they're not inspired. Those are not part of God's Word. Those are just there to help us be able to find stuff quickly. Uh, so we can say, Acts chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 19, and I don't have to like tell you right after this sentence and before this one, you can just find it. And so uh, they're just there to make it easier for us to reference where we are. Uh, so the end of verse 19, I'm going to read all the way through verse 31, and then we're going to dig into a few things here for a few minutes. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Rhetorical question answered, Yes, that's this guy. 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him. Right? We would be too. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. 
And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Again, that's the Greek, uh, the, the, the Jews who lived in the Greek world. But they were still seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So, again, we, we, did, we did that review a little bit ago, and now we're at this place where Saul has had this basically 180-degree turnaround. So now instead of persecuting Christians and therefore Christ, he begins what? To proclaim Christ. Immediately, it says. And, and something I noticed, that it's not even really part of the sermon, but just how quickly... Saul already has his own disciples. That discipleship is just a natural part of his walk with Jesus. And so as you read verses 19 to 21, at the beginning of this section here, you have to remember that Saul doesn't know much distinctly Christian theology. Right? He's not a Christian theologian yet. Now, certainly he knows a ton of theology. Right? But it's Jewish theology, not distinctly Christian and so what we see right off the bat for Saul was that there's one thing, though, he, he gets right right at the beginning, and that's this. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we could go off on a whole tangent here about how to contextualize the gospel to the people that you're talking to as a Christian, that you speak to them about the issues that relate to the gospel in, in terms that they need. And certainly that's what's going on here with Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God that Paul is pointing out, Right? Saul is new in his Christian life, and so for him, this is really all he knows, and this is all he needs to proclaim uh, for effective proclamation of Jesus. But, but look at the response in verse 21. It says that all who heard him were amazed. Actually, that word amazed is the same word we get the word ecstatic from. So, so they're like ecstatic about hearing what Paul said, or Saul said. They knew I would do it. Hearing what Saul says, that the people hearing Saul are caught up sort of with him in the freshness and the excitement of his conversion. And if you've, if you've never been around this, if you've never been around a person who is newly converted and excited about Jesus, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty fun to be around. It gives energy to, to the church and the people around. Remember that, that Saul is the student of one of the greatest Jewish teachers and most scholars would say that, that Saul is probably a, a genius in terms of his intellect. Uh, there, there are some who believe that he probably, we still probably know his name, even if it wasn't for Christianity because of how genius he was. He probably would have been writing and he would have been well known. So, so now all of that intellect, that, that sort of that lawyer's mind, that legal mind that Paul, Saul has, and, and all of his pharisaical knowledge, and I mean pharisaical in a positive sense there, all the knowledge a Pharisee would have, a religious leader of the Jewish scriptures, that they make him into a really good debater here in terms of proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God, even though he's a novice Christian. He's a brand new baby Christian. Now, all of us, when we are converted, are not going to immediately start debating the local intellectuals. Okay, So don't be like, oh no, I have to do this now. No. But every Christian goes through these stages, right? First, it's really pretty easy to talk about Jesus. It's brand new, it's fresh, you're excited. And, and so it comes naturally because it's new, it's exciting, and you might know one thing about Jesus and you just tell everybody about it. <coughs> then, if you live a little, little bit of life and, and you follow Jesus, it gets a little harder. It gets a little tougher because there's questions that you didn't think of that other people thought of and, and stuff you can't quite wrap your heart and your mind around. 
And so your Christianity and sharing your faith starts to get a little more tricky, a little more difficult. And then there's a place where you come to terms with the reality that actually it's impossible for you. You can't do this in your own power. You can't step into what God has specifically called you to. And it's when you get to that spot and you surrender that God then begins to use you in the most effective way that he begins to use you. And I think in our text here today, Saul is in that first stage in, in these sort of opening verses of, of what we read. But what we see from the story of Saul here as it continues in the New Testament uh, is that he was not yet ready here in Acts 9 for the ministry that God is going to call him to. Which, thank God that he called him to that ministry because you and I are here as a result of Saul being called to the Gentiles. And so we see, what we see is that, in fact, God has a long time of preparation ahead for Saul. Uh, longer than you and I would probably imagine, given his background, right? We would think that Saul would be a perfect candidate to immediately begin having, how would we say it in the evangelical church? Oh, he's going to have huge impact, right? He's going to win the world for Jesus, right? And we'd throw him out there right away if we weren't careful but none of that stuff actually qualified him for what God had for him. That even his crazy conversion story, I mean, Paul's got a, Saul's got a great testimony to tell, right? Riding a horse, Jesus, not, like, that's killer stuff. And yet, God takes him through this season of preparation. And so God has still some work to do in Saul. Uh, Saul has some work to do. But basically, the last half of chapter 9 shows us how, how God kind of prepares Saul for service. I just want to highlight a couple of things uh, to notice in this text. And maybe one thing that you might not have realized, I didn't realize it until I studied Acts a little bit further. But the first step is actually found between verses 22 and 23 of chapter 9. Because uh, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, you don't need to flip there, but I'll read it to you. Uh, that actually covers the same time period as we're in here in Acts. So Paul is writing to the church at Galatia about what's being expressed here by uh, the narrator of Acts. And Paul tells us that he goes away for three years. So between verses 22 and 23 there in our text, there's a three-year span of many days. This is what he says. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So most of the scholars and interpreters that I read this week and leading up to this would tell you that this three years in Arabia and Damascus is that time period of when many days had passed there between 22 and 23. Okay, It's a reference to that time period of Paul's preparation. And so the, the first step in God's preparation of Saul, who would later be known as Paul, was this really lonely time in the Arabian wilderness. Specifically, this is Sinai. Now, if you, if you know your Old Testament at all, you know Sinai is very, very significant. And so Saul, knowing his Old Testament way better than any of us would have known it, would have had some pretty incredible associations for that spot. I don't know if you've ever ever had that, but if you, you go to a place, a, a geographic place, that has meaning to you, you can feel it, right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever visited somewhere. I've visited a few churches where there's something about it that I feel connected to it because of my faith and, and the beauty of that place. And so 
I'm sure Saul was having some of that going on. He's thinking probably at least of two greats in the Jewish faith, right? He's thinking of Moses, the giver of the very law that Saul thought he was being so zealous about, the prophet Elijah, who was such a reformer of God's people, and now to us, we look at a process like this oftentimes as kind of a way, we don't see the value in this. Three years? Like three years off of this guy's impact that could have been? Right? If I'm looking at this as like a church planter or something, I'm thinking, get this guy out there now. Like, let him be an evangelist right now, Lord. He's fresh, he's new, he's full of excitement, he's winning these intellectual battles. Let's get him out there. And he can really draw a crowd, but that's just not the way that God does stuff. He confounds our ways sometimes. And so the first step in Saul's preparation isn't promotion, it's actually seclusion and silence. In fact, later on in his own ministry, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is giving some coaching about who should lead in the church. He's giving some, some protocols for who should lead in the church, and he gives a warning about promoting a new Christian. Listen to what he says, 1 Timothy 3, 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, literally meaning this becomes he becomes wrapped up in his own glory. He may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I have to believe that when Paul's writing this in Timothy, that he's thinking of his own arrogant self before he gets to the desert. Again, the way we would want to think about this is so different, right? We think promotion, and God thinks quiet preparation. Saul's time in the desert is pretty mysterious. We don't really know what happened there. We just can see the results. We, we don't know anything that goes on, but we can see the kind of man that comes out of the desert. So his two questions, as he was there on the Damascus Road, are, are two questions that often are with us as we become new in the faith following Jesus. Who are you, and, and what do I need to do? Right? These are two questions. And so in, in answering these questions, we, we end up finding out about who God is and then by implication who we are. And I want you to hear me say that's the order it has to go in. I don't know if you notice it, but many times when we're moving through our service, that's the order we go in. We, we sing songs about God and who he is, and then we figure out who we are. That's the pattern from Isaiah 6 that we read about. And so it's safe to assume that Saul is getting some instruction from God through the Holy Spirit, who's at work in the book of Acts, right? During these desert years, that centers on probably these two questions. Now, first, Saul was, based on what he's proclaiming here in Acts 9, Saul is already convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, right? And he's right about that. But in Arabia, in that desert place, the, the depth of that gets hammered into Saul's soul. The death of Jesus being the Son of God. This is a time of fulfillment, if you think about it, of Jesus' words in John 17 in his prayer. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they, which Saul is one of they at this point, they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That our depth of knowledge of who God is would grow in these seasons of preparation. Later on in his letter to the Philippians, Saul's experience of knowing Jesus as the Son of God uh, fills him with this thirst, so much so that he writes this in Philippians 3. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, that I may know him, 
There's that word again, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And listen to this part. We don't want this part. We want the power of the resurrection part. But listen to this knowledge. And that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. And so Saul in the desert is being prepared for this life of suffering, which God called him to. See, on the road to Damascus, Jesus' claim to Saul was this. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And this gave Saul a completely new understanding of the kind of love that Jesus, who is God, has for his people. Saul now understands that Jesus so identifies with his people. And hear me, you and I, if you know and love Jesus, that Jesus so identifies with his people that when they are persecuted, he is persecuted. That in Jesus, God becomes vulnerable. Which is crazy to think about and feels a little wrong to even say. This made the cross more understandable to Saul. That Jesus truly did suffer for the sins of the world on Calvary. And so Saul's heart in the desert then grows in love and, and deepens in understanding of who this Jesus that he saw on the horse is that he loves his people this much. And Saul now knows, I'm one of his people. And so that's the second thing that Saul learned, is, is who he is. Now, I want you to, again, keep that order in your mind, because if you go searching for who you are first, and then you try to plug Jesus into that second, you're going to get things all backwards. And things are going to be all messed up for you. Jesus is first. Jesus is primary. And all of our knowledge about ourselves has to come from first knowing Jesus and seeing ourselves in light of him. The model from, again, the prophet Isaiah comes to mind. First, he sees who God is. He sees God sitting on a throne, holy, 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 high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. And then in response, he cries out in realization of who he is. And maybe you know this text, maybe you don't, but Isaiah says, Woe is me! I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people who are unclean. I, I, I got nothing to say. Woe is almost a guttural response. And Saul, Saul needed to say, he needed to get over himself. Think about who Saul is. See, Saul is named after King Saul, Israel's first king. Saul is proud of being from the tribe of Benjamin. Why? Because back then it was pride, a thing of pride to be from that tribe because they always went into battle first. I'm a Benjaminite. We go to battle first. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was the son of a Pharisee. He had outpaced all of his contemporaries in study. He was mentored by the most prominent Pharisee. He's a proud Man and God needs him to get over himself. And what we see from the life of Saul who becomes Paul is he does just that. As we follow his life, we see that he ends up preferring the name Paul, which actually means small. He realized that to be yoked, to be connected to Jesus, is to be like Jesus. And Jesus said in Matthew 11, in, in one of the only places where Jesus gives a description of himself, Jesus says this, take my yoke upon you. Meaning, come, come be connected to me. And then he says this, learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
That's who Jesus is. That's how Jesus self-describes himself. And so now Saul is learning the humility of being yoked to Jesus, of being connected to Jesus, of walking with Jesus, to be lowly and gentle in spirit. Uh, a famous British evangelist once said it like this: When God wants to do an impossible, when God wants to do an impossible task, He takes an impossible person and crushes them. And here's the reality that I want you to hear, because there's no getting around this. Jesus will always, He will always take us to the end of ourselves before He uses us. He will. Moses spent 40 years learning to think he was somebody, then he had to spend 40 more years learning who he really was. In the same desert where Saul is in this text, by the way. And only, and only then, after that, could he then serve and be effective for what God called him to. Jesus, right? He spends probably about 18 years preparing for three years of ministry. Before Jesus' ministry, he was just in anonymity. He was just a... He was just a carpenter's son. And at the beginning of the three years, he spends 40 days alone in the desert with the Father. So what's the lesson here? It's not some new, re this is not some new revelation. Right? It's not some new, wow, a new thing to learn. No. It's the same old, same old thing. It's a reminder to do what we already know to do. Silence, solitude, the scriptures, God's voice to you. Right? If I was in children's church, I would teach him, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll what? You'll grow, 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 grow. You'll grow, grow, grow. Not, I should do emotions, but... <laughs> right? So, do you want to be used by God? Any Christian would probably say, yes, of course I do, unless they really understand what that means. And then they'd be like, oh, yeah, I do, but caution. You want to be used by God? Right? You must. Not you can if it works into your schedule. You must... Spend time alone with God. It's a must. If not, you won't be used in the way that God wants to use you. So find a way, right? God might not be calling you out to the Arabian desert for three years, but he might be calling you, listen, this might sound silly, but I'm serious. He might be calling you to rearrange a room in your house. That's quiet, where you can spend time alone. He might be calling you to rearrange your schedule, to make space for him. Now, that's a hard one for us, right? We like to fill that thing up. But he might be calling you to rearrange your schedule. He might be calling you to make a standing appointment in that schedule that you do not schedule over. And some of us are like, I don't know, this sounds legalistic. It could be, or it could be discipline. But also... I want you to hear this too. Be encouraged. Jesus isn't in a hurry with your spiritual formation. He's playing the eternal game. He, he's building us for eternity. He isn't impatiently waiting for you to get this thing right already. He's inviting you into something. He's inviting you into life and life to the full. He's gentle and lowly, so he is just going to keep inviting you. He's going to just keep inviting you. Sometimes he'll take you out of what you thought you would be doing to prepare you for something you never thought of, like Saul becoming the apostle to the Gentiles. That's not on Saul the Pharisee's radar. And I wonder if some of us feel like we're in a bit of a spiritual desert even right now. 
Maybe you feel spiritually disoriented. You're not sure where you are. You're not quite sure what's happening. But you also are finding that you're learning who Jesus is at a new depth. And as a result, you're, you're kind of figuring out who you are in light of him. And so be encouraged, right? Jesus had to go to the desert too. Saul is here in the desert. One commentator said this. When I look to those times out of the mainstream of what I thought the Lord was doing in my life, I can see that I was being better prepared for fast-moving currents which later carried me on the high seas of adventure and effectiveness. The Lord will not use us until he has made us ready, and then we thank him for knowing what he is doing. Now again, it may seem to us like the preparation is complete for Saul, right? But there's a couple more things I just want to touch on here in Acts 9. First, uh, and we'll see how much time I have for this, but we see next that preparation, so he comes back out of the desert, and we see that preparation with God, and hear this, does not exempt you from pushback and persecution when you come back. Right? You should know that from Jesus. Came back from the desert, then it got worse. Right? Got hard. Ministry was very, very effective, but very difficult. Saul is in the same boat. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Right? So you read this, you're like, wait a minute. So Paul goes off, Saul goes off to the desert, spends plenty of time alone with God. And then the first thing we read is that there's a plot to kill him. What? Really? Listen, and this is so important for us. God never made you a promise that if you do all the right spiritual things, you'll escape the suffering of this world. And if you're frustrated at him about that, it's because you're holding him to a promise that he didn't make to you. If that's what you think he promised you, then comfort is your God, not Jesus. And if that makes you frustrated, it's probably because an idol just got touched. And we get frustrated when that happens, right? Now, in our foolishness, we might think that this all sounds like a scene out of like a cool spy movie, Right? Oh, cool, he got lowered outside of a building at night because there was a plot. But in fact, this is humiliating for Saul. Because we don't live in a, in a cool spy movie. We live in real life. Listen in 2 Corinthians 11, how he talks about this. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That is so opposed to everything in our culture and in our world. We boast in things that show our weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he... He who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So did all the prep, right? Saul did all this prep, spends time with God, and yet things don't just immediately go good. That's what we think, though. I can tell you that as a Bible college student. Come out of Bible college, I know everything now. It's going to go perfect. <laughs> and then you go to church with people who are like you, and you're like, oh, it doesn't go perfect, because I'm involved. And, and right, it doesn't just immediately go as he thought. And this is a blessing for us if we'll see it this way. If you had success at every turn, and God didn't allow you to experience some of the things he's allowed you to experience, I want you to think back on your Christian walk, and he didn't allow you to keep some of the things, to, to experience some of the things that you have experienced that ended up keeping you humble... 
you'd be able to think it was you instead of Jesus who's doing the spiritual work in your life. Right? We're in a life's church. Jesus is our sanctifier, and sometimes he does that through failure. You could end up thinking it's you and not Jesus who's doing the spiritual work in your life and in the lives of those who you, through him, are now leading. And he just loves us too much to let that happen. He's not going to let us become prideful, arrogant people without allowing some difficulty. Right? I read this quote this week. God ruthlessly perfects those he royally elects. And so your stories of defeat, like Saul's here, this is a, this is a difficult story. They tried to kill me. Your stories of defeat, like Saul's story of, of kind of failure, defeat here in Damascus, or at least difficulty, are simply for us, if we will see them this way, stories, more and more stories of the grace of Jesus to retell. That's what these become. Jesus redeems your stories. So let me just wrap up by giving you just a couple applications from this text. Hopefully that will be helpful. First, I want you to know that Jesus is going to make sure that we know the lesson of the vine from John 15, which is this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Saul, or insert your name. As we think of what it means to be prepared by Jesus for the ministry that he's calling each of us to. And listen, when I say that, I don't mean a missionary or a pastor necessarily, although some of us are called to that. I mean the ministry that Jesus has called you to. For some of you, it's your family. For some of you, it's a ministry to your neighbors. For some of you, it's a ministry in your profession. But Jesus is calling each of us to a ministry. He's going to prepare us, and so we have to keep in mind that he's going to do everything he needs to do to get rid of any idea that we can do that ministry through our human flesh. And he's going to do that in order to teach us that apart from him, we can do nothing. Because if he doesn't do that, and you start making disciples in your own power, you're going to make disciples of you and not Jesus. And that's not what he wants. Again, he might not be sending any of us into the literal desert. But he might. God does stuff like that. He might not be sending any of us into the literal desert, but he might be calling us into the desert of a failure in our career. The death of a loved one the end of a dream we had for our lives. Whatever it is, we all come to the end of ourselves from time to time. Any of you experienced this before? In the Alliance, we call this a crisis experience of faith. You come to the end of yourself, and hopefully you learn more deeply who Jesus is, and in light of that, who you are. For some of us, that, might, that, that time might be right now. You might feel like, I'm walking in the spiritual desert, right now. But what I want you to know is that if that's you, you are right where Jesus wants you, if you know and you love him. See, Jesus loves to renew and to restore and to prepare the person who is in this desert place, because Jesus is all about going all the way to the end and then resurrecting. That's what Jesus does. That's what he's about. Failure, death, they're not the final answer. Resurrection and resurrection power is the final answer. Answer. And lastly, this is, this is just a word for us as we live at the pace that we do. This is a word for us because we live in a culture and a, and a, at a pace of life and a level of frenetic busyness. I feel like somebody flipped a switch like three weeks ago, and it's like soccer, school, church, right? All this stuff just started happening. 
So this is a word for us, and I said us, I didn't say you, I said us, right? We live in this culture at this pace of life, this level of busyness, that gives us false expectations about how quickly spiritual things happen. They don't happen that quick. It takes time to build a life that God can use in the way that he wants to use it, and he's patient. He doesn't care if you start being effective for him in your 80s. He'll wait. You can't rush spiritual formation. Our spirituality in Christianity is made in God's slow cooker, not in our microwave. Or air fryer, if you like that. Right? Don't undervalue times out of what seems like important ministry. Don't undervalue those times. Don't undervalue times that God is giving you just to be and not to do. That God is giving you just to recharge or to rest or to learn to just be with him. I want to say this with all the love I can as, as your pastor, right? None of us, and again, I said us, not you. None of us are so important to Jesus' plans that he can't do it without us. None of us are indispensable to the kingdom. Now, I know that to our modern Western ears, we hear that as, oh, I'm not valued. But, but no, that's not how it's meant. Instead, hear that truth as freedom. God is more in love with you. And I don't mean for once, I don't mean collective you. I mean you. Like you, single, just you. God is more in love with you, and he is way, way, way more concerned about your growth into all that he intends you to be than he is in love with what you can do for him. He doesn't need you to do it. I, I love this word picture, and it's happened to me a couple times. I heard this before it happened to me, but now as a parent it's happened. My little daughter, she's right, she's seven years old. She likes to help me with things, but she doesn't, doesn't really help me. Right? Yesterday I was here, there was a birthday party, you know, be using our building uh, from the community, and I was here cleaning, and she wanted to help. So I said, all right, let's go. Yeah, come on, help me. Now, I basically had to do everything, but she was helping me. And yeah, there was some stuff that she, she helped. And that's a little bit like what it's like with God. All the things that you think, I'm going to have huge impact for God. You're like the seven-year-old trying to help Dad carry the couch. Right? It's like he just wants you with him. And so your ministry is primarily about God shaping you into who he wants you to be. And then he'll use you to do that with some other people as well. He, he's a good shepherd, and he loves you more than he loves what you can do for him. So my question is, do you know that today? Do you know that? If you're in that desert place, do you know that your shepherd loves you more than he loves what you can do for him? Do you know the love of Jesus that cares way more for you than you can even imagine? Way more for you than what you can do for him. I hope you know that. If you don't know that love, either you've forgotten about it, or maybe you're like, man, I haven't known that love of Jesus ever. That offer is on the table for you today. And I say it this way when I do funerals. And that seems weird to say here, but I think it's a good way to say it. The only thing standing between you and this kind of love is simply your surrender to it. The only thing standing between you and the love of Jesus and the work of Jesus on your behalf is your simple surrender to and trust in Jesus himself. And so come to him. That's the invitation. Come to him. Let me pray.
Jesus, we thank you for um, the scriptures. We thank you for these stories that happened in real life to real people. And yet also are transcendent and eternal in scripture. And so we see that they have application for us as well as we, as we learn to follow you, Jesus. We thank you that you've given us your spirit. Holy Spirit, we, we ask you to make us aware of you. Would you make us more aware of your presence? We know that you're with us. We know that you're in us if we know and trust Jesus. And so would you help us to see your power at work? And Jesus, we just ask that you would, by your spirit, prompt us to seek time with you. We know that you're, you're always there. We can come to you whenever, and yet at the same time, you're inviting us into a life with you, a life to the full that you've created for us that starts with being with you so that we would be connected to you, so that we would remember that you're divine and we're the branches, and apart from you, we can do nothing. We thank you again for this scripture today. I, I pray that it would be used by you to maybe prompt us to, to live a life that walks closer with you, learns your love more deeply, and through that learns about who we are. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.